Our first scripture reading today is from the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, we are picking up where we left off in the book of Mark, sort of beginning a new sermon series in Mark, but really it's a continuation of the old sermon series. And so we are reading in the opposite testament, in the book of Ecclesiastes, which is a book of wisdom. And it's a lot about the meaning of life, what, what matters, what's meaningful, what, what, how should we think about work and money and relationships and all these things. So we'll be reading through it as we preach through the gospel of Mark. As you can see, the first reading is from the very beginning of the book, chapter 1, verse 1. Craig is going to come and read it for us. Craig, if you would. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Round and round goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which is said, see, this is new? It has already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. We are taking up a series that we paused for a while in the Gospel of Mark. I'm going to say more things about this in my message today, but uh, Mark is one of the four Gospel accounts we have. It's, it's a story of the life, the teachings, and ultimately the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we're in kind of a section of Mark. We left off at Mark 10, which is kind of right towards the middle, a little bit past the middle of Mark. Um, and it's just before Jesus gets to Jerusalem, before the last week of his life. You'll see over the next few weeks, it's sort of a, a, a mishmash, a variety of teachings. Uh, today we begin with one more difficult one, one more controversial one, some teaching on divorce. And that's just simply where we left off, not an intentional choice, but we want to preach all of God's Word, whatever we come across week to week, and so we'll be in Mark 10 this morning. But first, uh, Renee is going to come and read it for us. You can follow along in the back middle portion of your bulletin, um, or you know, on, in the digital one, just scroll down. But Renee. Mark 10, 1 to 12. And he left there and went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. 
What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. All right, we're going to spend some time uh, getting into this text together. Uh, some of you are old enough to remember August 28th, 1996. It was on that date that the divorce of then Prince Charles, no, no King Charles, but Prince Charles and Lady Diana finally went through. And according to what I've read, according to what's been written about that, that time, it was, it was sort of a fraught time to be a pastor in the United Kingdom, because journalists were apt to call up the local minister and ask them, what's your opinion on divorce? And, and of course, whether or not they believed if the divorce between Charles and Diana was biblical or not. The British crown has long had deep ties to the Church of England, the Church of Scotland, and so it was not sort of a simple secular divorce, but a divorce between two people who, you know, were Christians, at, at least in name. And for a while in the UK, a pastor couldn't have a public opinion on divorce without implications being drawn from whatever that theological position was to the practicalities of, you know, the, the, the most famous couple in England. And you know, not much has changed. Because I, I bet that many of you, when it comes to divorce, like me, have a hard time separating what I may think or believe about divorce with the realities of life. Because we all know people who've been divorced. Many of us have family who've been through divorce. Some of us personally have been through it. And so any theological idea we have, any teaching, any reading from Scripture, we get to Mark 10, we, we are automatically filtering that through the lens of, well, what does this mean for my friends? What does it mean for my, my aunt or my uncle? What does it mean for me? It's not one of those theoretical doctrines where you can kind of believe whatever you like, and it doesn't really change your day to day. This is one that's intensely practical. It has large ramifications for how we live in the world. So my hope today is yes to explain, this is what Jesus teaches about divorce, to show how Jews, the Jews of Jesus' time, were reacting to that teaching. But as Jesus is apt to do, what I want to do is sort of get below the surface to show how Jesus points beyond divorce, even beyond marriage, to something more profound that he has come to do. And I hope this sermon will apply to you no matter your stage of life, because maybe you're single. Maybe you're widowed. Maybe you're happily married. You're not contemplating divorce, you know, even, even one little bit. I think there's something here for any of us, all of us. No matter, what, no matter what stage of life you're at. And so I hope that what you can do is try to just suspend your automatic filtering device. Um, how does this apply to this person? How does it apply to that person? Just try to give this teaching by Jesus some sincere thought before, we'll get there, but before we begin to apply it to, to all the world around us. I want to take it in three parts. We'll talk about the problem with the question. Second, God's intent from the beginning. And third, solving the heart issue. So first, the problem with the question. We've been out of the Gospel of Mark since last August. And so again, let me just briefly reorient you. He is writing about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Um, by the time we get to the next chapter, chapter 11, Jesus will be entering Jerusalem in what's called the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, uh, which means we're only five days away from the crucifixion. Basically, Mark takes almost half his book to do three whole years of ministry and teaching and healings and miracles and all that stuff. He's just zooming along. Mark writes very quickly. 
And then he slows to a crawl and spends almost half his book on the last week, you know, five days, if you count the resurrection, you know, seven days of Jesus's life. And so chapter 10 that we're doing today and next week and the, the third week are, are the final teachings happening outside of Jerusalem. And Mark's going to talk about divorce and then children and then a rich man and then a blind man, a bunch of different things. Jesus teaches on divorce on a number of occasions. The Sermon on the Mount is one of the most famous parts, a couple other times, mostly because the Pharisees kept asking him about it. May not surprise you, for the Jews of Jesus' time, it was highly debated, just like today. These people weren't so different from us. Different prominent rabbis had very different takes. Some were very strict. They said, oh, you can only get a divorce in the case of a clear case of adultery. Others were quite lax. They allowed for divorce whenever a husband simply wanted one. And of course, there were, there were plenty of folks in the middle. But different groups of Pharisees keep getting Jesus to try to side with them uh, or, or to try to get to trip him up and get him to say something un, uh, unpopular that all the crowd would be mad at. And they're not so dissimilar to the journalists, you know, calling up a pastor during a high profile divorce and, you know, maybe they'll say something spicy that I can put in my article. But these Pharisees, they have a question about divorce. But the first problem with their question, it's found right there in verse two. It says they aren't there because they are earnest seekers of the truth. Why are they there? They are there to put Jesus to the test. We are here to test you. Their motives aren't pure. So this is not the same thing as a husband or a wife really wrestling with a very difficult marriage and earnestly trying to understand, well, what does God want me to do in this very, this very hard marriage? No, no, no. This is the intellectual game the Pharisees are playing. They aren't there to, to, to be, they aren't there being honest. They are there to test. And here's what they ask. Look carefully at their question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, as modern readers, the first thing we notice is like, well, that sounds kind of sexist or patriarchal or one-sided. What about, what about the woman? What, is, it, is it lawful for a woman to divorce her husband? Well, the Pharisees didn't really think about that. That simply wasn't allowed. If it, if it feels sexist, it's kind of because it is. Women and men in this era did not have equal rights. Women had neither the social nor the civil rights to divorce their husband. The question is one-sided because the Pharisees just did not even consider it, did enter their minds that a wife could and might divorce her husband. And look, for all the flack that Christianity takes about being sexist, look, some of it deserved. When the Apostle Paul comes along in 1 Corinthians 7, and he's talking about singleness and divorce and marriage, he writes, so it's, it's crystal clear that both men and women are free to seek divorce under certain circumstances. There's an equality to Paul's teaching that would have been shocking in light of uh, his cultural moment. But for the purposes of this passage, the Pharisees, these other Jews, they just would have assumed, um, you know, women can't divorce their husbands, so they're only asking, can, what can a man do with his wife? But again, look carefully at the question, is it lawful to divorce? It's an interesting way to put it. They could have put it a number of ways. Is it good for a man to divorce his wife? Is it, is it right for a man to divorce his wife? Should a man divorce his wife? There are many ways to, to put it, but they only want to know, are we allowed? which essentially assumes that marriage is a contract. Not, again, not so different from us, from our modern time. The marriage as contract view basically says, marriage is good as long as it is working for me. If it stops working for me, then like every other contract in my life, my phone plan is not working for me, I renegotiate the contract, I get a new phone, I leave the relationship, you know, I change it. Imagine if we talk about other parts of life the way the Pharisees talk about marriage. 
Imagine after the service today, I came to you and said, is it lawful for me to eat 20 bags of Doritos? You would say, well, it's like, it's not against the law. You you may eat 20 bags of Doritos, but that's, that's the wrong question. You would feel terrible. You should be asking, is eating that much junk food a good idea? Is it good for you? Or perhaps someone asked you today after church, is it lawful for me to move my family into the middle of Algonquin Park with no power, two days paddle from from the nearest road? Now, some of you are like, it's kind of the dream, actually. Um, It may be lawful. I mean, I don't know about land rights and all that kind of stuff, but you should be, you're saying that's just a wrong question. You should be saying, is that good for my family? Will we be eaten by a bear? Can we, can we survive? Can we, can we live a full life? Is it lawful to divorce? That may be important to tackle at some point, but the Pharisees, they are missing the point. They, they're asking the wrong question. And I think that many of us, when we get into marriage issues, we are very, very concerned with what we are allowed to do, and perhaps not concerned enough with what is right or good or helpful. And maybe this question is just too surfacey. That marriage problems that threaten divorce, it's often a sign something deeper and more profound has gone wrong. And when you ask, what can I do? You are just missing the forest for like a little single tree along the edge. The Pharisees aren't asking the right question. And as I said before, they're not asking it with the right motive. This is the problem with the question. Okay, part two, God's original intent. Now, Jesus... He's pretty smart. He's pretty wise. He won't be sucked into the Pharisees' game. He doesn't answer them. Well, it says that he answered them, but really he just asks a question. So they say, is divorce lawful? He says, well, what did Moses command? It's a clever answer. Because the Pharisees, they revere Moses over all their other teachers and prophets. Moses was the lawgiver. The Pharisees are law people. Their grand vision, they're like, the vision of their political movement was, we are going to purify Israel through strict adherence to the law, because that means that Israel will become more pure, and then the Messiah will come. And what the Pharisees didn't understand, or they didn't take seriously enough, is that the law can only tell you what to do. It can't actually change your heart. It can't make you want to do it. So they want to know what the law will let them to do. Jesus picks their favorite guy. He's like, well, they'll listen to Moses. What did Moses command? They answer in verse 4, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce to send her away. Now, in a very narrow sense, that's technically true, but they miss the point. Deuteronomy 24, 1-4 is, is the section of scripture they're referencing, and it does contain a specific command regarding divorce. But here's the thing, the Israelites of Jesus' time, they were not following Deuteronomy 24. If you read it closely, I'll I'll tell you what Deuteronomy 24 is about. It's about a very specific kind of divorce, and I think, lawyers, you can correct me afterwards, it's what they call case law. It's basically an example of something, a narrow example of something, and it's a bit convoluted, but I'll do my best. Um, in, In those times, when a woman got married, they were given a wedding present from their father or from their family. It was called a dowry, usually a sum of money, animals, some kind of asset. It would be useful to them in their future life, help build their future family. So if a husband divorced his wife either very quickly or for what were judged to be poor reasons, the woman normally kept her dowry. So you can get divorced, but she's taking all that money or whatever with her. But if the wife was unfaithful and the husband divorced her for, you know, legitimate reasons, the husband would get to keep the dowry. 
So Deuteronomy 24 is about a man who divorces his wife for legitimate reasons and presumably gets to keep the dowry, and then the wife goes off and marries a second man, presumably gets a second dowry from her family, and then Deuteronomy 24 says, well, if that second husband dies or she gets divorced from him, then the first husband is prevented from remarrying her. And you're like, why does this matter? This is, this is pretty narrow. Presumably, it's just saying because the first husband wants another dowry. Like, I'm going to take her back because I get more assets from the family. And that's all that Deuteronomy 24 says. It's this narrow instance of a first husband and a second husband and then remarrying the first wife. See, it's a very niche situation. And as far as we can tell, what it's designed to do is designed to prevent this first uh, a man, this first husband, from exploiting a woman or exploiting her family. And if you read the whole Old Testament, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, everything, that's all the law ever says about divorce. There are a couple of references to women who have been divorced, how they ought to be treated. But the Old Testament law, there's, there's no passage that says, here are the reasons you may get divorced, you know, dun 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 The Bible in the Old Testament, it never says what the Pharisees say here, that, hey, send, feel free to send your wife away with a certificate of divorce. There is an absence of law. And in that absence, many Jews of, of Jesus' time had adopted no-fault, easy, easy divorce. There was a whole school of thought, quite popular, that, that gave the husbands immense power, allowing them to divorce their wives for literally any cause that they deemed fit. So circling all the way back to verse 4, Moses did not allow a, a man to simply write a certificate of divorce to send his wife away. That was a practice based on an absence of list of reasons. So I don't know if you see my point. Divorce was understood to happen, but it was never commanded, and it was never supposed to be as simple as just writing a certificate. But the original meaning of Deuteronomy 24 has been twisted, changed, to suit the desires of people. The only commands we have are those that are sort of regulating uh, this, uh, the scope of divorce, and specifically the power of, of, of a man over a vulnerable woman. And we have further proof of this, because in verse 5, Jesus says, well, this command only exists. Moses only wrote that command. God only gave that command because people have hard hearts. And we'll, we'll kind of return to that in our third section. But Jesus goes on to say, if you really want to know what God thinks about divorce, you have to go back further than Moses. The law isn't enough because there's, there's, there's a gap, or not a gap, but there's, there's, it doesn't spell it out. To get a full picture of marriage divorce, we have to go further back. And the reason the Jews are in such a muddle about divorce is because they've forgotten something important. See, verse 6 begins with but, which just means the creation account is going to differ with, it's going to contrast with, and contradict the Pharisees' view. And then God's intent and action from the beginning is what is cited by Jesus. Before you can understand divorce, you have to understand marriage. And I think it's important for us. If marriage is only contracts of convenience, as long as love shall last, then no fault, easy divorce makes a lot of sense if you take that view. If we're only agreeing to live together and love each other, then simply making a different choice 5, 10, 25 years later, then, then what's the big deal? But Jesus says, Genesis tells a different story. And Jesus quoting Genesis says, we're first made male and female in the image of God. A boy grows up, becomes a man. He leaves his father and mother, holds fast to his wife. And if you look in verse 8, the two become one flesh. So the biblical story of marriage is not primarily of a contract, just an agreement. But the Bible says an act of creation occurs. 
two separate things are joined together into something else altogether, a new thing. The joining of two into one, as verse 9 teaches, you hear it recited at, you know, weddings, this is an act of God himself. God is the one putting them together. And one of the hardest parts of early married life for most people is that switching from thinking of just me to thinking of we. Like, you understand intellectually that you're married, but it takes a lot of time, usually, to begin thinking yourself, oh, I I am part of this other thing. There's a we now that exists. But what, what Jesus is saying is that's not just sort of a sociological phenomenon. Jesus says when a person takes vows and agrees to marry someone else, when they share the same bed and the same life, something new is now present. See, the Christian view of marriage is while you are doing natural things, having a ceremony, gathering with people, making vows, God is doing something supernatural. He's welding you together spiritually with your spouse. So this view of marriage then is quite different, because now if you consider divorce, you're not just sort of restarting two single lives that briefly kind of ran on parallel tracks. No, no, you're actually breaking a one flesh union, a new creation that God hath, hath wrought, had he brought about. And God's intent, God's design, God's goal for every marriage is to preserve that, that one flesh union until death takes, you know, one or both of you. Now you're still wondering. Okay, but yeah, what about the exceptions? (laughs) What about the reasons that uh, someone may get divorced? Well, I think this background is important because here's how the Bible teaches it. Divorce is permissible for Christians when human sin breaks the one flesh union. Now, I say the Bible's commands are primarily for Christians because... This view of divorce and marriage depends on a belief in God, uh, a belief in the book of Genesis, a belief in Jesus, a belief that God is is doing something spiritually, making this union, uh, a belief in sin. If you're not a Christian, I still think this constitutes good advice, a wise way to live, all that stuff. But I'm just, I'm simply telling you, this is what the scriptures teach, and it's primarily for Christians. So then what kind of human sin breaks that one flesh union? Mark doesn't present anything. But the rest of the scriptures do, and I think it's important for us to know this, so I'm going to briefly go over it. Two categories are presented by scripture, sexual immorality and desertion. You know, Jesus taught on divorce on a number of occasions, not always getting every bit of nuance and exception. And on this occasion, Jesus' clear intent was to point out what marriage is, what it was intended to be, not to explain when it may be, you know, broken. But because this topic, you know, it's touchy in Christian circles, I think it's wise to touch on these exceptions, sexual immorality and and desertion. What do I mean by sexual immorality? Well, that definitely includes having sex with anyone who's not your spouse, but it can include all kinds of sexual activity with not your spouse. Depending on severity may also include significant pornography addictions. When you engage sexually with a person who is not your spouse, you're not just breaking trust. Even secular people would say it breaks trust. But the Apostle Paul says you're actually uniting yourself spiritually with another person. Just like when God joins you together with your spouse, so something is happening in the spiritual realm when you engage sexually with someone who you're not married to, and you've functionally, by sin, broken the one flesh relationship you had with your spouse, and you've created a new one over here with someone else. And though it sounds kind of like a new, maybe just a little nuance, Christian divorce simply recognizes something has already taken place. The marriage has already been broken. The union has already been shattered. Divorce acknowledges a reality that's already taken place. Now, to be clear, you don't have to divorce. 
if your spouse sleeps with someone else. You are free to forgive and to rebuild, of course, but you're also free to seek a divorce. And Christian churches, listen to me, Christian churches that insist on spouses always forgiving, always returning to their spouses who have cheated on them, I do not believe they're following the scriptures. And they've done immense harm to many people by insisting on that. And I will tell you, you don't have to listen to them. Sexual immorality on numerous occasions is mentioned as grounds for Christians to be divorced. Now, the other scriptural category for divorce is what theologians call desertion. This is in 1 Corinthians 7, if you want to leave it for yourself, or read it for yourself. It sometimes happens that for, for whatever reason, one spouse abandons the marriage. Sometimes physical, they actually leave the house, they, you know, they disappear, they move out, they functionally cease the relationship. Other times, spouses desert a marriage through abuse, physical, emotional, sexual, spiritual, etc., now, desertion is a very difficult category to sort through because it's not as concrete as adultery or sexual immorality. Depending on what exactly has happened in the relationship, it's hard to have the, you know, the, the, the smoking gun. Oh, this one clear instance when the, when the marriage was broken. Yet it remains a biblical category. And in our denomination, we actually have, we have well, we're, we're good Presbyterians. It's like a hundred page essay on this topic. But it, it simply recommends, if you are a spouse in this kind of situation, contemplating a divorce for reasons of, of desertion, you ought to consult with the elders of the church to determine if it sort of meets the biblical criteria. And essentially this essay says, you need other people to know if, if the divorce is legitimate. And to make a judgment on it, to review, you know, sort of the facts of the case. So these are the two biblical categories. And again, what they're recognizing is that one or both partners have already broken the, the, the one flesh union. The divorce certificate, the divorce process, it just acknowledges something has already occurred. Now, what you will notice about these categories is, quote-unquote, no-fault divorce doesn't, doesn't show up. Now, no-fault divorce means what it says, that neither party is guilty of anything, uh, but, uh, you know, for reasons, for other reasons, a couple has decided we, we can't be married any longer. And according to the scriptures, that's not a reason Christians may divorce. Now, do they? Yeah, regularly. Um, should they? Not according to the scriptures. Do you always have a choice? No, sometimes the other spouse leaves and they want a, you know, a quote unquote no fault divorce and they, they're pushing their way out. What should the Christian response to those kinds of situations be? Well, in verse 11, finally returning back to our Mark text, Jesus says, if you divorce your wife and marry another, you commit adultery. Now that does not contradict what I said earlier, that there are legitimate Christian reasons for a divorce. And if legitimate, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 again, a Christian is free to marry again. But the teaching is strict, and unfortunately, it's not taken seriously by Christians. But if your divorce does not fit into the prescribed reasons, then you ought to remain single. Now, another question. What if it's too late? What if, what if like, well, I've already, I'm already remarried. I've already... Uh, then we, they'll always say is, you need not pile more sins on top. You don't need to get another divorce so that you can go back to being single. And I think it's really helpful. When Paul teaches on this in 1 Corinthians 7... Verse 17, he says this, he says, let each person lead the life the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called them. And I think that's helpful because I don't know all your backstories. 
I, I don't know the reasons you divorced or didn't divorce or remarried or didn't remarry. I don't know all the stories of your family and friends. I haven't covered all the exceptions, not even close. Maybe you're feeling all sorts of things this morning listening to this, shame or guilt or sadness or anger or regret or all sorts of things. And I think Paul is telling the Corinthians, you can just live for God right now in the situation you are in. You are in the life that God has given you one way or the other with all the regrets, all the mistakes, all the warts. But wherever you find yourself when you come to this teaching, just start walking with God now in the life you have. Like Jesus said, go and sin no more. You can just, you can just begin here now. But let's talk about part three, solving the heart issue. When it comes to divorce, there are all kinds of specific situations that are kind of impossible to get into from like a preaching, a preaching thing. Like you have something that does not fit neatly into the categories I've mentioned, I'm sure. So what I want to do in our third section is kind of look at this little snippet of the text that I think unlocks some of the issues and some of the sin that lead to divorce in the first place. And I think this can apply to you, even if you're unmarried, even if you're, uh, you, you know, it, whatever stage of life you're at, I think we can all take this to heart. Look at verse 5. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. In other words, we have to have laws about divorce and remarriage. Why? Because we have hard hearts. If we were perfect people, we'd be living in the Genesis 1 and 2 world, no sin, and men are joyfully leaving their parents and holding fast to their wives. And there are these beautiful one flesh unions all over the place. No one's ever getting divorced. But that's not the world we live in. We live in the Genesis 3 and beyond world full of sin where people commit adultery. People desert their spouses. And people abuse each other. And there's mistreatment of all kinds that takes place. And you make mistakes and you sin. And now because we have this world... Divorce is permitted, but not encouraged. It's allowable under certain circumstances, but never ideal. Not what God intended. And Jesus says, we need these laws. We need rules. We need permissions because we have hard hearts. And so, if you are a single person, maybe hoping to be married one day, and maybe you're wondering, like, how do I avoid divorce? Or maybe you're already married, and you're wondering, how do I stay married to this person? How do, how do, we avoid, how do I avoid divorce in the relationship I'm in? Well, the answer, according to Jesus, is quite simple. You just have to get rid of your hard heart. Now, that's not, that's not easy. <laughs> it, it, it is simple. And you, you'll say, well, that's impossible. And yeah, by yourself, on your own, trying hard, gritting your teeth, it is impossible. But friends, isn't it so beautiful that when Jesus comes to this, this thorny and difficult issue of divorce, he doesn't just wag his finger at us and say, stop divorcing. What's wrong with you? Why can't you get it together? Why can't you act like a Christian? Jesus doesn't come and give us more rules and lay down new laws. What he says to us is, you need a new heart. You, you can't do it. Your heart doesn't work right. Your heart is self-interested. Your heart's hard like a rock. And you need someone to come with a jackhammer and, and break it open. That's what you need. Have you heard the saying, the heart wants what it wants? We use that to, to mean someone is attracted to someone unlikely. It's like, wow, well, the heart wants what it wants. 
But it sort of reveals this belief that, that, our, that our hearts are kind of un, un, out of control. They just kind of run amok. <laughs> we have no way to rein them in. They're just like kind of being dragged all over by our hearts. And it's actually kind of a decent description of a heart without Jesus. It runs amok. It's all disordered. It loves all the wrong things and all the wrong orders. It's hard and unwieldy. And I want to read to you, just very briefly as we finish, a beautiful Old Testament prophecy about what the Messiah would do when he came. This is Ezekiel 36, verse 26. God promises the people, I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put in you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And give you a heart of flesh. What, what has Christ come to do? Heart surgery. To take out old hearts that, that are stony and hard and difficult. And, we, and they're, they're taken from us. And new hearts are put in that worked right. So you want to avoid a divorce? Great. <laughs> At least as far as it depends on you. You need a new heart. Which means you need Jesus. All the rules, all the guilt, all the pressure, all, all the marriage books, all the, the helpful life hacks, that they won't keep you married. But two people with hearts of flesh, new hearts filled with the Spirit of God, they can face anything together. Jesus came to make us new, and I'd invite you to him. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful and thankful that you came not just to tell us to stop doing something, to give us new laws, but you came to give us new hearts, to recreate us in your image. And we know that Christians, we sin on this issue all the time. Even if we don't actually divorce, we think about it or we wrestle with it. So please help us. Please change our hearts. Take out our hearts of stone. Give us hearts of flesh that love you and that love the neighbors that we live with, the neighbors that we are married to as ourselves. And it's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.